Hey everyone, and welcome to PR Hangover, a weekly PR recap and talk show brought to you by Grand Valley State University's PRSSA chapter and hosted by me, Kelly Darcy. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the show. So we can go ahead and get started. Why don't you kind of start by telling us who you are and where we are and what for? My name is Kara Alimo. I'm an assistant professor of public relations at Hofstra University in New York, and I'm really thrilled to be here at Grand Valley State University as one of the speakers in the APR speaker series this semester. So what brings you to Grand Rapids specifically? So I came to Grand Rapids to talk in the APR series about my new book called Pitch, Tweet, or Engage on the Street, How to Practice Global Public Relations and Strategic Communication. The book is about how to practice PR in different countries and cultures. And so I break the world into 10 different cultural groups that were identified by previous researchers. And I explain how to adapt your messages, strategies, and tactics for each of these cultural groups. And I wrote this book because when I was practicing public relations in the Obama administration and at the United Nations, I found that there wasn't a resource that would tell me, here's what you do in Africa, here's what not to do in Russia. And so this was really the resource that I was looking for. I went out and I conducted interviews with senior PR professionals in 31 countries to inform the book. So why do you think that this is knowledge for students to know? Like, what do you think makes this? I mean, obviously you needed it, so something that you obviously needed to encompass, but how how do you think it's going to affect the students? So I think that the public relations messages, strategies, and tactics that work best vary widely in different countries and cultures. So for example, here in the United States, the top three sources of content that goes on to trend on Twitter are the New York Times, ESPN, and CNN. So what that tells us is that if you want to influence the social media conversation, one of the best ways to do that is to influence the mainstream media. Well, the exact opposite is true in China, where everyone knows that you can't trust the version of events you read in government-censored newspapers. And so if you want to influence people in China, you're best off going to an independent group of social media influencers who've gained reputations over time for sharing information on Weibo and WeChat that actually turns out to be true. And so that's just one example of how the influencers and platforms that work best vary so dramatically across different countries and cultures. And that's why you really, really need to understand a local culture before you start practicing public relations within it. So how did you... So you you mentioned that you spoke to 31 different um, countries? I conducted interviews in 31 countries. So how did you pick those countries? Were they ones that often came up, or was it something that kind of, they were the ones that maybe were most easily accessible to you? So the book breaks the world into 10 different cultural groups, and I profiled at least one country within each of these cultural groups, but I chose the markets that were biggest that practitioners are most likely to practice in. So for instance, in Asia, I profile China, Japan, South Korea, India, and Indonesia, rather than smaller markets like Singapore and Malaysia, which would be important, but it's just sort of a little bit less likely that practitioners will work there. So for this first edition, I really focused on the places uh, with the most demand for public relations practice. So besides writing this book, what else are you you working on anything else? Like, are you touring with this book? Are you just kind of luckily coming to us and letting us know what's going on with it. I am. My speaking engagements have been taking me across the country from Alabama to California. I've been talking about the book and global public relations. And another topic that really interests me is 
how the world of public relations is changing after uh, the 2016 presidential election. So some of the forces like fake news and use of psychographic data from social media and uh, Trump attacks on Twitter that all of us need to be thinking about. And so I've been writing a lot of columns about this uh, for Bloomberg View, looking at what PR practitioners should be thinking about in terms of do we take stances on public issues? Do we not? Um, and it's been really exciting to talk to PR practitioners across the country this year about my book and also about these columns. So do you think then, I know that a lot, there's, there's been a lot of, obviously politics are really important right now, there's a lot happening, just changes in general that are going on. Um, for companies in, to take a stance, do you think that that's necessary in terms of politics or do you think that it's, more, it's easier just to kind of sit back and not, not really take any stand, be a neutral party? It really depends on the business and the issue. So the consensus in the PR community seems to be right now that it makes sense for companies to speak out publicly when an issue is related to their core business or speaks directly to their sort of spoken and lived values. Mm -hmm. um, it also makes sense to take a public stance on an issue if that issue is strongly infected affecting people who are very important to the business. So employees, customers, investors, board members, or if those people feel very, very strongly about an issue. If neither of those two conditions hold, it often makes sense for a company to stay out of the fray. Okay. Um, and either way, whether you weigh in or whether you don't, you need to be prepared for backlash for that decision. We see uh, consumers boycotting companies because they're selling Ivanka Trump's line and because they're not selling Ivanka Trump's line. Right. So how do you think I guess how do you like how do you win as a company? I mean, it seems it's a lose lose situation no matter what. So, what do you think the point of for companies to keep in mind and people for like students who are going to start representing companies to keep in mind when there when there's ultimately backlash? Um, so, it's to first answer those two questions mm -hmm. because that will allow you to make the right decision about whether the reputational costs are. Uh, worth the rewards that you gain by taking a stance. Um, but I think another thing that companies need to be aware of is that you don't need to answer every negative tweet. Mm -hmm. And so you, what you need to do is monitor the situation and see whether it's gaining traction with audiences who are actually important to you. Right. Because often the people who are criticizing you are not actually important or never going to shop in your store they anyway. Um, and what ends up happening is that when businesses respond, they make the issue more high profile than it otherwise would have been. And so Helio Fred Garcia, is one of the brilliant minds of this world, uh, says that uh, a lot of the reputational damage that's inflicted on corporations during a crisis is self-inflicted harm. Mm -hmm. So then it seems like maybe having good crisis communication skills in terms of recognizing what, what to respond and how to respond to it would come to, in play a lot. Absolutely. And it's maybe, I mean, companies should always have crisis communication on, in mind just in case something happens, but maybe more so now where there seems to be kind of a lose-lose? Or do you think that it's always kind of been that way and it's just more highlighted now? I think companies have always needed to have strong crisis communications. That's particularly the case in the era of social media. So Fred Garcia also talks about this concept of the golden hour of crisis response. And it's a term borrowed from emergency medicine because if someone's having a heart attack, minutes count. And if you get that person to the hospital within the first hour of the heart attack, they're much, much more likely to survive. Same thing is true for corporations being attacked on social media. Minutes count. And if you respond quickly, you can frame the issue for important audiences. 
and you can get ahead of it. If you wait for days, the conversation's moved on and you're just reviving the issue. So I think it's super important now for companies to realize that minutes matter, for them to forecast the kinds of issues that they could be vulnerable on and write and have their responses approved internally far in advance of ever becoming subject to these forces. And do you think that between the different, um, like globally, that crisis communication differs at all? Or do you think it's kind of a, I mean, obviously watching minutes would, would count for everyone, but do you think that there's a, any large differences in that sense? There are cultural differences in how you respond to crises. One of the big things that I talk about in my book is a concept that scholars call risky communication in the parts of Asia that have been influenced by Confucianism, like China, Japan, and South Korea. So Confucian culture teaches people that talking about a problem makes the problem worse. Mm -hmm. And so the best thing to do if you have a problem is to not tell anyone. And a lot of PR executives have told me that they believe it is for this reason that it can be harder to convince companies in this part of the world to be transparent. Mm -hmm. So I think of companies like Sanlu, which was the Chinese manufacturer of infant formula. Just before China hosted the 2008 Beijing Olympics, they realized that their formula had been poisoned and they decided not to tell anyone and Mm -hmm. to quietly pull it from store shelves, but not to tell parents who'd already purchased the, the formula that they went on to feed their infants who were poisoned and died. Luckily, Sanlu is no longer in business, but it just goes to show that um, this is an issue that we really continue to face in the profession. And of course, it's not just Confucian Asia. We've seen companies from plenty of other cultures like Volkswagen um, undergo, you know, or manufacture huge cover-ups. But I do think it's a particular issue in this culture. And it, it does go back to the need to understand cultural differences when you're practicing really any form of public relations. So as I know, we learn a lot as students that, you know, transparency is best. Transparency is everything. And I, and I think about working for a global company that that mindset just can't work all the time. You have to know kind of where you're working. So if you were to have something go out as a global company and you maybe are with many different countries, how would you go about kind of factoring your crisis communication in with the many different subcultures that there are? Transparency is always the answer. Being honest is always the answer. But cultures really do vary. So the best example is Sweden, where PR practitioners practice radical transparency. And people really do expect that of you. And if you are seen to be not forthcoming in any way, local audiences just absolutely will not trust you and you don't get a second chance. So one of the profiles that I do in my book is of at Sweden which is one of the country's official Twitter handles. And I'm not making this up. The country turns over control of their Twitter handle to a different random Swedish citizen every single week to tweet whatever they want, completely uncensored, completely unfiltered. And when people have posted really sort of offensive things like anti-Semitic comments um, and reporters have asked, why do you allow people to post this? This reflects terribly on your country. The answer is censorship would be unacceptable in this culture. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of an extreme example of the practice of radical transparency. And again, it shows that different cultures have different expectations. Um, One of the big things that I talk about in my book is social expectations. So since the 1990s, PR professors have taught their students the generic specific model of public relations, which says that when you're practicing PR in a different country or culture, you need to account for certain local differences like the political economic system, the culture, the level of development, the extent of activism, and the media system. And in my book, I make the first two additions to that theory. And one of the things that I talk about that you need to take account of as well 
is local social expectations. Mm -hmm. What do people expect of you and how will they judge you accordingly? So for instance, I interviewed the head of communications for GE in Latin America, and he told me that if you're working in a community in the Amazon and that community needs a new road or a school or a bridge built, they will ask you to build it. Mm -hmm. And he said, make no mistake, doesn't mean they trust our company, doesn't mean we have any expertise in this area, all it means is that we're there and they think we have the capacity to do it. Now, in the United States, we would, of course, ask the government if we needed a new road bridge or school belt. So that's just one example of how you really have to know going in what local people will expect of you so that you can craft your public relations strategy in response to local social expectations. And then the second uh, factor that I add to this theory is the concept of local influencers, of understanding who's influential in a particular community. And we in the U.S. tend to think of Hollywood celebrities, but... In many places of the world, it's the local imam or it's the village chief who can be your conduit to mm -hmm. a community. And if you can get that person to evangelize for you, forget it. You're set. Mm -hmm. So it seems like as long as you find those large influencers and recognize that they're different throughout that's kind of how to be successful. That's one way. There's right. so many different ways. There's so many other factors that you have to account for. Um, another big one is emotions. Mm -hmm. So here in the United States, if you asked me a tough question that I didn't like and I started screaming at you, people would think that I was unhinged, right? Particularly because I'm a woman. Right. Well, in the Arab world, the exact opposite is the case. And so if you're talking about an emotional subject and you don't become visibly and audibly emotional, people won't trust you. They'll think that you don't care. Interesting. Um, another big way that cultures differ is on the difference between high context and low context communication. So here in the United States, um, we tend to be low context communicators, which means we're blunt, we're direct. In other parts of the world, people practice high context communication, which means they assume that you're picking up on the nuance of what is left unsaid. Mm -hmm. um, and those that causes so much confusion. So in my very first job at the United Nations, I coordinated a team of global communicators and I would organize biweekly conference calls on which I would ask my colleagues to send me content for our global PR campaigns by particular deadlines. And inevitably the deadline would come and I wouldn't have what I thought they'd said yes to, what I thought uh, they'd agreed to send. Finally, my boss, who is from South Africa, had to explain to me that in many cultures, it's rude to say no. Mm. And so my colleagues would say yes to anything I ever asked of them, regardless of whether they had any intention of ever delivering. And that taught me that while I needed to understand high context communication, but I needed to understand cultural differences more broadly if I was going to be effective in communicating internally, let alone externally right. within that role. And that was really sort of my first impetus for writing the book. So what made you want to, or what brought you, I guess, to PR? I think everyone kind of has a story of what, what brought them to this specific industry. Yeah. Um, I studied journalism as an undergraduate at NYU. And in my junior year of college, I started interning in the New York City Mayor's Office of Film, Theater, and Broadcasting. After eight days, they asked if they could hire me full-time. I said <laughs> yes. I finished my senior year of college at night, and the rest is sort of history. But... Um, in college, I interned everywhere. I interned on Sex in the City. I interned at magazines. I interned uh, in PR. And it really gave me a sense of what I loved and what I hated. And I thought that that experience was incredibly valuable. And that's what I always advise my students to do. So then I guess that kind of helps with the, the last large question I kind of have is, what do, you, what do you think students should know about everything that you do and everything you've learned? From, from your perspective, something that students should take away from if they can't come see you tonight, 
for when this goes out, for what for if they are thinking about being in a global company or, or working globally, what do you think that they should know? I think that students need to understand that culture is everything when it comes to practicing public relations. And so you really want to understand how cultures around the world differ and what best practices are in particular countries and cultures and learn how to adapt your messages, strategies, and tactics accordingly. A lot of people think that they can get away with practicing domestic PR, that they can go work for a local school district or a local hospital and speak to local communities. And to some degree that might be true, but all it takes is one person with Ebola to show up on your doorstep and all of a sudden you are communicating to the world like it or not. Mm -hmm. And so I think that these are skills that every practitioner has to have. And I really hope that my book helps with that. Yeah, it sounds like something, A, that I would like to read, and B, that I think would be very influential for students to have. I mean, you wanted it as like a manual of ways, kind of like a rough, like a dictionary of things that you need to look up for when going to and speaking to different countries and cultures. And I think that'd be really helpful for students to also have if they are applying for global companies. I know at least like we have like Amway around here and things that, you know, are global companies and that you can't just take the, the, what we're learning here in Grand Valley as end all be all. Absolutely. And if your listeners are interested in the book, I can give you my personal friends and family discount code. Yeah. Uh, so you go to routledge.com, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E.com and search for the book, which is called Pitch, Tweet, or Engage on the Street, How to Practice Global Public Relations and Strategic Communication. And if you put in the discount code FLR40 at checkout, you'll get 20% off the book and free shipping. Wow. That's amazing. And also the only time a discount has been used on the podcast. So <laughs> hopefully the first for everything. Ready, but yes, that's amazing. Thank you so much. You're um, welcome. I really appreciate speaking with you today and I hope that tonight goes really well for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PR Hangover. If you want more PR news like this, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GV underscore PRSSA. Talk to you soon.